Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. I'm Kif Scheuer, Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission. I'm your host on our monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we've been discussing ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. Today, I'm happy to welcome our guest, Daniel Hamilton. Daniel is uh, serves as the sustainability manager for the city of Oakland in California. Daniel has 20 years of experience in managing sustainability programs, policies, and plans for local governments and utilities. He has led multiple award-winning projects and plans across California and has taught professional and university courses in energy management, sustainable policy development, and green building design and construction. He has a BA in architecture and an MA in sustainable planning, both from the University of Kansas. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Well, let's get started. I wanted to set the stage because this week saw the release of a new intergovernmental panel on climate change report. And these always land with the proverbial thud uh, in the public mind. Uh, Sometimes they get a lot of attention, sometimes not so much. This one in particular focused on what we can expect if we don't hold temperatures to one and a half degrees Celsius versus going to two degrees, which has been the Paris Accord target, and more importantly, what it might take to keep us to one and a half degrees. One of the major takeaways for me is that we need to make a lot more progress on all levels by 2030 in order to meet this more aggressive target. And there's a lot of reasons why we'd want to do that from the level of impacts, the risks we face, the number of species and people who are exposed. Something that jumped out to me and I think provides context and and is certainly appropriate for Infinite Earth is the following statement in the results. Strengthening the capacities for climate action of national and subnational authorities, civil society, the private sector, indigenous peoples and local communities can support the implementation of ambitious actions implied by limiting global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. And they make that statement with high confidence. So we talk a lot here on this program about how do we get to scale? And so that being a current news item certainly jumped out to me as we had this call planned with Daniel to talk about what's happening in Oakland and how the city is responding to climate change. So Daniel, to get us started, you know, as you think about climate change and the urgency of our need to respond, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing sustainability and climate efforts at the city level? I, I love that introduction. I think the IPCC report really did demonstrate two critical things that are guiding the work that we do here in Oakland. So we were already, I think, well well aligned with the, the findings of this report. One is that there is a critical need to act in the short term. The best time to do this 
was 25 years ago, but the second best time to do it is now. We do have cost-effective technologies available to us. We do have really high-quality modeling and information available to us on where we can act and how we can get the most bang for the buck in climate investments. So the technology is out there. The policy solutions are out there. It's really just a matter of bringing them forward and bringing them forward in as many places as possible. And secondly, we have to do this within 12 years. We know that within 25 to 30 years, we could start seeing some of the big impacts. The, the lack of awareness and pickup of some of these stories in the media has largely been, I think, driven by the fact that the, the effects are so long-term. People can't expect to see this within their lifetimes at any great scale. Whereas now, we're really seeing that the urgency is now upon us. The impacts are certainly visible today uh, in many coastal areas, states like Alaska, Louisiana, even North Carolina, are seeing some of these today, and it's only going to exacerbate. So I think we're starting to see a shift in awareness and attention to this. And in places like Oakland, where sea level rise is going to affect our uh, most vulnerable populations first, burst, and hardest, there's a tremendous opportunity for us to help drive forward carbon reductions as a means of addressing uh, the impacts of climate change, simply because those neighborhoods that everybody agrees need the most attention, that have faced the most adversity in the past, those are the neighborhoods that are going to benefit most from the current attention. And I think that drives broad public support and that gets uh, a broader stakeholder engagement for, for driving action forward. Thanks. That's that's really helpful sort of uh, context on where Oakland's at. And you mentioned the past. I don't know that all of our audience would think of Oakland at the forefront of climate change, but it's certainly been in the news throughout history for a variety of other reasons. I'm wondering if you can kind of set the stage for how Oakland got to where it is today and maybe some of the historical backstory, if you will, for Oakland's engagement on this issue? Yes, I think most of, of the listeners probably know Oakland more for its history of um, what I would call deep social inequities in the past. Oakland is the place where the Black Panthers were started, not because Oakland was tremendously innovative, but because Oakland's history of policing issues within the community had left such a negative perception of government um, across a variety of neighborhoods and across entire racial groups that social change started to be driven from the bottom up because of these inequities. In a place like Oakland, it's largely two different cities today. What you see is a very affluent part of the, the city that has largely been led by population dynamics over the last 20 years. People priced out of San Francisco have moved into Oakland across the bay. And now we see lots of new developments coming in, lots of greening up in the hills, lots of very affluent people um, with deep, tremendous climate values coming in. There are parts of Oakland that that look as modern and dynamic as, as any high-end city in the world. And then simultaneously, if you come into the flatter lower lands of Oakland, along our industrial waterfronts next to the Port of Oakland, the fifth largest port in the United States, what you see is the historic Oakland that a lot of people will think of. It's a place that has a lot of poverty, a lot of violence, a lot of um, land use disparities in the way the community was built out such that communities like West Oakland, um, which is our largest neighborhood in the city, is surrounded on three sides by freeways, on the fourth side by the Port of Oakland, and is centered around the wastewater treatment plant for the region. And you can imagine what that does for the quality of life of people living in those areas. At one point in the 1990s, the asthma hospitalization rate for West Oaklander was 16 times higher than the national average. To be born in West Oakland is compared to a community like Rockridge, only three or four miles away up the hills. The life expectancy difference, even 10 years ago, was 15 years. It cost 15 years of your life to be born in the wrong neighborhood in Oakland. These are powerful 
indicators of what life in Oakland is like, both on the good and the bad. And because of those inequities, we have this, I would say, strong public emphasis and desire to make sure that equity is the driver of these programs, not just because the vulnerable populations are going to be hit by climate change worse and first, but also because we know the government had a big role in creating these inequities. And so it's incumbent upon government to find ways to innovate, to bring the baseline level up for those people who were adversely affected most by our previous decisions. And doing that not only is the right thing to do, because those are the communities, those are the members of your population that deserve the most attention, but because it's a responsibility that helps bring people together. The community can really rally around this. And in Oakland, we've seen it generate a lot of political support, a lot of business support, a lot of neighborhood level support, when we can show that we're genuinely trying to do the right thing by all the people of the community. That's some great context. I appreciate that. And raises some other questions for me, which is, you know, you talked pretty strongly about working from the bottom up, inclusivity, addressing issues of historical injustice. But you also talked about innovation and you talked about really driving change to scale. How does the city look to reconcile those things, which often seem like they happen in isolation? You see a lot of technology and innovation driving from affluence, uh, and you see more uh, grassroots effort lacking that focus on innovation and and not really bringing those two things together. How's Oakland trying to marry those together? Well, I think this is one of the, the fundamental misunderstandings of how we're going to address the climate challenge. And particularly in regards to cities and cities in affluent countries like the United States. Innovation is a huge part of um, how society works. And being in the Bay Area, we are home to Silicon Valley. Uh, Oakland is home to a lot of the tech companies uh, that are driving some of the changes in the transportation realm and communication realm and data management across the, the realm of society. But in fact, innovation is happening all across communities, including at the local level and within neighborhood groups. It's just not necessarily the creation of a new iPhone. I'll give you a great example of Oakland. In our case, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are, are counted here in two ways. We do what's called a core analysis, a standard counting of all the emissions generated within our boundaries. And when we do this, we get comparable results to other cities. Land use and transportation are the heaviest drivers of this, about 85% in Oakland's case. But we also count emissions from a consumption perspective. It means we look at everything that is bought and sold in Oakland, the goods and services that move through our economy, and we see what impact Oaklanders are having on the world. Climate change is a global problem that doesn't recognize or support boundaries. So in this case, we really wanted to know what are Oaklanders responsible for. When you make that kind of analysis, the cities that have done this have generally found that about two-thirds of your emissions profile occurs outside of your city boundaries. And by far, the largest category for the city of Oakland, when you do that consumption analysis, is actually material waste. Now, in this case, a core emissions analysis would only talk about emissions of methane from a landfill. But a consumption analysis shows that it's about purchasing habits, things about buying plastic water bottles. Not necessarily whether you recycled that bottle at the end that makes the most climate impact. It's actually whether you decided to buy that bottle in the first place or use a reusable bottle instead. These are the kind of things that truly drive impact across the global nature of this problem. And grassroots communities are doing a tremendous amount with regards to uh, the circular economy, with regards to um, purchasing habits, with regards to um, sharing information and generating broad public support for these changes that we need that affect material waste. Uh, in ways that are are remarkable. Two great examples going on in Oakland, uh, one around the circular economy. Oakland has a fairly large uh, repair and reuse economy. 
These are places opening up where you could come and bring any broken product. You can bring torn clothing. You can bring jewelry that's broken. They help find ways to fix things, to keep them moving through, uh, have a longer lifespan instead of simply throwing them out and replacing them with cheaper products, which is unfortunately the norm for most of America right now. And secondly, with urban food production, particularly with food waste. Food waste we know is a huge challenge um, within American society. About 40% of food is wasted nationally on average. And we know this is not just whether or not you decide to throw things in a green bin to help get them into a green waste or composting program. But this is really about buying appropriate quantities of food, about finding ways to not waste the end of, say, the buffet lines at hotels or catering from special events. Um, We have some amazing organizations here in Oakland that have helped to drive food recovery from those to make sure that food goes into the hands of homeless, to get it into food banks, to get it into Meals on Wheels, to get it into the places we know need it. And this gets to broader public support for these things. If we can reduce carbon emissions by reducing food waste and feeding people that are food insecure at the same time, we've solved a number of different social challenges in ways that reduce our carbon footprint. These are the ways we get to scale, and these are the ways we start to institutionalize climate thinking in across social issues and across government programs. We do it not by focusing on the carbon. We do it by finding the real deep social need that appeals to a lot more of the population, and then we find the carbon impactful solutions that we can help raise for those challenges. Outstanding. Wow. Um, A lot of things you're tracking across the city, uh, a lot of different partners and stakeholders. I've never met a local government staff person who has enough time to keep close enough tabs on what's going on, but it sounds like you guys are doing a great job of at least understanding these connections and seeing them and hopefully seeding change. I'm wondering, how are you getting these insights, both in terms of places you might focus attention that are different than others. Uh, you mentioned food waste as, as an area and material waste, which I don't think all local governments are focusing on as much. And also, how do you stay in touch with what's happening on the ground? Well, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for staffers to, to help change the narrative of climate conversations. Particularly, a lot of the things that we focus on within the climate world tend to be the things that aren't actually driving actions or things that were really impactful in the past, but may have lost some of their overall potential relative to the scale of the problem. In the case of Oakland, what we found is to be truly innovative and to drive change across both the community as well as the government, it can't just be a few climate staffers focused on this that are leading the conversation. When we focus on communication tools that help empower the people within our community and empower other government professionals to do climate-based solutions in their approach, we find much more scaled impact. An example of this would be around food waste, for instance. The circular economy and California climate policy both suggest that eliminating waste is the most impactful thing we can do. And we've got good modeling that shows this is, in fact, a pretty big part of what we need to have happen within this. Rather than try to lead those food waste recovery programs, rather than try to lead the circular economy, we focused on going out within the community, going into neighborhoods, in the languages they speak, in the places they already meet. And we go to them and ask them what their major problems are. They're never going to say climate change in vulnerable communities. It's just not going to be the top priority for somebody who struggles to pay the bills, who struggles with housing and food security. So when communities come and tell us, my main challenge is the infrastructure. I feel like I have to repair my car all the time because the roads are always potholder. I can't have my kids walk to school because it's not safe and the sidewalks are all cracked. 
these are challenges that create opportunities for us to then engage those folks in climate-friendly solutions. If we want to talk about permeable pavement so that we can increase groundwater recharge and lower our water imports from other areas, we can do that um, through the means of making neighborhoods safer by making sidewalks safer. If community security is an issue, we can talk about uh, getting in crime prevention through environmental design standards, these ways of doing more lighting, better landscaping in ways that make the community feel more secure when they're using this public infrastructure. If we want to talk about electric vehicle infrastructure in different neighborhoods, especially in, in areas that have a high transportation burden already, we can do that not by coming in and talking about the carbon savings, but rather talking about uh, neighborhood car share and other ways that can help increase access to vehicles for people that don't have regular access now or don't feel that transit services are reliable or effective enough for their needs. So reframing the conversation not around climate, but rather using the identified barriers and challenges of people in their language, in their terms, and then finding climate solutions to those we found to be an effective driver for having others lead those conversations. So food waste, those nonprofits that I mentioned earlier, um, specifically are doing amazing work. The city doesn't have to be a leader on that. The city can be a follower on them and simply provide them with information, resources, and connections where possible. By doing this at scale, we can be much more time efficient, and we can hopefully generate far more activity and not have to, to have a leadership role along the way. A uh, really interesting way to, to approach it. And I, I like the idea of being a follower, empowering uh, your local partners, and certainly letting uh, the climate solutions emerge from the problems and needs that folks are identifying. Because I think you're right, they're not going to identify climate as their top driver. Um, but if you can find that link, that's fantastic. Kind of related to that, uh, one particular issue that is just dogging everybody in every community in California at this point is housing. And I think it's also a national problem as well. And I wonder how that is playing out in the housing arena in Oakland. I know pressures are tight there. So how are you guys grappling with both the demand for more housing, the demand for more affordable housing, and yet the desire to build safe, climate-smart housing solutions? Well, housing is absolutely one of the top priorities in Oakland and will continue to be for a number of years. The, the Bay Area as a whole has a tremendous housing shortage in Oakland. Is is certainly tops among them for, for trying to find ways that we can build out housing. I don't think that climate is necessarily all of the answer in there, but I think there's a lot of opportunities within this to really push forward some innovative ideas in housing. As an example of this, a year ago, the city of Oakland had about 28 million square feet of certified green building space, either LEED or uh, Energy Star space. At our current pace of, of growth right now, we're building more than a million square feet of certified green building space every month. So we're going to more than double our green building capacity within two years. This is not because of the city's green building ordinance. We certainly have one, and it does help with the drivers on this. But a bigger challenge to this is the market is just expecting to do green buildings in a place like Oakland. Over time, you can have legacy impacts once people get used to the ordinances, once people get used to the way of thinking for doing buildings in your community. It can just become second nature for them such that the policy drivers are no longer really the things creating the market dynamics that you need to succeed. I'll give an example. Out of the Global Climate Action Summit here in the Bay Area a few weeks ago, the Mayor Schaff of Oakland presented with the Norwegian environmental minister, specifically around issues of port electrification. How do we get those large container vessels that you see moving 90% of the goods in the world um, across borders, how do you get those onto carbon-free technologies? The minister, who used to be a city council member in Oslo, said that in 2007, 
when he tried to introduce a requirement to have 100 electric vehicle charging stations in Oslo, 100 charging stations total, he was laughed at by all of his colleagues and told it was completely infeasible and it could never happen. That was 10 years ago. And in 10 years, now in 2017, the most recent data that's available for Oslo, 70% of the vehicles sold in Oslo are some form of electric. 70% of vehicles. 30% are fully electric. 40% are plug-in hybrids. This is amazing. That's what can happen in 10 years when you start with something modest, but you institutionalize the level of thinking. Now, here in the United States, we don't have anything close to those numbers. But as we talk about how do we get solutions in place by 2030, we have to start knowing that things that are really challenging today, things that seem like they're impossible with today's technology, can move so quickly if we just get people thinking about it, get people starting to build it into the projects, processes, and policies that they're doing, we can have this impactful change. The adoption curves on so many of these carbon technologies are tremendously high. We've seen it in the solar industry. We've seen it in wind generation. We've seen it in green buildings. We're starting to see it in transportation. It's just remarkable, but we have to be willing to push a little bit harder on the innovations within the government side, and we can see their impacts happening really quickly. Buildings and housing is one of the great examples of places that, as we move towards decarbonized technologies, things like heat pumps uh, to provide space heating and water heating or induction cooking, these are technologies that are in place. There are markets for them now. In Oakland, we hope to be able to bring a green building ordinance revision forward in the next two years that looks at how many of these technologies we can mandate to be electric. Five years ago, this conversation couldn't have happened in Oakland. There would have been very little support for it. Today, we have a coalition now of product makers, of builders, uh, not only willing to entertain the idea, but we have market-based developments going on in Oakland, three of them currently, where they're building this without any city regulation whatsoever, simply because they think it's the right thing to do for a variety of reasons. One, homeowners want it. Two, it reduces earthquake vulnerability because not having any natural gas lines anywhere in the buildings greatly decreases the fire risk and the health risks associated with things like earthquakes. So we find there's a lot of dovetailing interest for bringing these things forward. And quite frankly, with government processes that take often 12 or 24 months to bring about, really pushing them, knowing that within two years, things that seem really difficult for you today are going to be much more palatable by the time your planning commissions, your city councils, and your supervisors hear about these things. So from a staff level, getting comfortable with the rapid pace of technology is going to be one of the things that we have to adjust in our processes, knowing that change is just happening that fast. The more we're in front of it, the more successful we're going to be. Really interesting. And it, and it definitely makes me think of, as you touched on the end there, sort of government processes, both as a leader, but also the challenges with government trying to lead. I mean, so often we talk about with climate change, the direct impact of local government is small. Their levers of change can be strong, but are often limited. We've got other actors and other stakeholders and, and boundary conditions. So I'm wondering if it sounds like you have a lot of frameworks for action built by and for Oakland, and, and you guys are trying to act and push on them as much as you can. Our audience loves to hear about these examples, and, and we've talked in previous uh, episodes of this program about mainstreaming climate action, mainstreaming resilience, the ideas you've been talking about. And I'm wondering if you can share some of the projects, programs, initiatives that are helping you act, helping you identify where to act that we could share with the audience. Oh, I'd love to. The city of Oakland uses a climate action plan as the basis for a lot of our large-scale climate actions, similar to, to a lot of cities within that. And our climate action plan was written in 2009 to cover about 10 years, to cover through 2020. 
And we're currently in the process of updating uh, that plan to cover the next 10 years, 2020 through 2030. And I would say in looking back over the changes that have happened since that last plan was adopted, we've been able to implement a lot of things, a lot of good ideas. They've helped drive down emissions pretty substantially in Oakland. We've created things like a community choice energy program that's providing 85% carbon-free electricity, all at lower rates than our investor-owned utilities of the past. We've reduced waste. We've reduced emissions from municipal fleets and buildings. We've done lots of good. But looking forward to the next climate action plan, I don't think we can use many of the same strategies that we've done previously, and I don't think we can even use the same type of thinking. I would say climate action plans that were made in the late 90s and early 2000s um, largely had the same challenges to them, and we identified three things that we think really needed to change for us to do our next climate plan. The first was we didn't know which climate actions were most cost-effective to produce greenhouse gas emissions reductions. This seems like a pretty big flaw in climate action plans that we can't say whether electric vehicles or a green building ordinance are going to be more impactful. We can't compare waste actions to things like solid waste, solid waste upstream and solid waste downstream, for instance. So in looking at these things, we knew we needed to have a cost-effectiveness model. Now, there are various tools out there that are starting to do this. The one that Oakland participated in is called the CURB model. This was developed by uh, C40, the World Bank, AECOM, and Bloomberg Philanthropies as a tool to help cities really understand what things were most cost-effective. Many people in the field have used what's called the McKinsey Curve from 2007. This showed at the national level and the global level what those solutions looked like. Well, Curb allows you to do that at the local government level. We end up with very different results from that. And with the help of Bloomberg Associates, the city of Oakland was able to go through and do about an 18-month analysis to identify our top five priorities. We now have those, and there is a clear differentiation for us between the five things that we need to focus on and everything else that may be good ideas, may be good for sustainability, may be good for equity, but they're not going to move the needle as much as our big five. It allows us to do prioritization, and I'll get to this big five here in a little bit. And the second deficiency that we identified is that we didn't know how much our climate actions cost. This is also a pretty big flaw in government processes. We would never be allowed to bring forward something, say, a new roadway design um, without knowing how much it costs. Our city councils would never accept that as a baseline level of analysis. We have to be able to understand costs, and that brings us to our third deficiency. We don't know how we would pay for them even if we did know the costs. Uh, so we didn't have a finance strategy. And the lack of cost and finance strategy is something that Oakland spent about a year also trying to get in front of. We did that by doing what we called a finance scan of all of our climate actions. We had uh, fellows actually from, from the Civic Spark program come in and go through and talk to every staff member who had implemented one of our climate action strategies, ask them how much time they had spent on it. We developed billing rates for everybody. We looked at consultant contracts. And we went through action by action to really understand how much our climate action plan was going to cost and where we were getting the money from. We were able to produce a graphic that showed this off and is the basis now for our conversations and updating the new climate action plan to show, are we underutilizing some sources? Are we overutilizing others? Are we too dependent on one financing strategy? And once we put all this stuff together, do people understand the level of investment needed to truly drive the types of carbon savings that we're trying to achieve? So, all of these things together, cost effectiveness, the cost and the finance, these three things all largely been addressed by Oakland in ways that are helping us do this 2020 to 2030 strategy. And proposal is, is out there on the street. We have consultants helping us now in doing this. We expect to be able to bring it forward to council 
by about April of 2020. But the, the end result of this is what we hope will be the, the first climate action plan that we're aware of that gets to tremendously deep carbon reductions in line with what the IPCC tells us we need to do uh, in reports like the one you gave in the introduction in ways that not only are ambitious and innovative, but in ways that we think are practical because we will say, here's what it's going to take to implement them. Here's how we plan to pay for it so that we've got a strategy in place that gives us a little bit more certainty, a little bit more credibility in having these conversations, not only in our communities, but with outside finance groups, with philanthropy, with everybody that's going to be needed to, to help make these a reality. Wow. It's a, you know, again, the, the comprehensiveness with which you're approaching this is fantastic. And something I'd love for you to uh, sort of talk about as part of that is something that I saw in that uh, RFP for the Climate Action Plan, which is that you've divided the scope in a rather interesting way that I think speaks to some of the, the issues and the goals and, and the values you're trying to convey. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So we started the conversation today talking about the inequities that exist in Oakland, community policing and some of the environmental inequities I discussed, but there are many more around social issues, around housing issues. Redlining was certainly very prevalent in Oakland in the 50s and 60s, and the legacy impacts of that continue today. So as I mentioned, we try to have equity be the driver of all climate policy. It helps us build broad public support, and it also helps us make sure that we're doing the right thing. We're not saving the climate for the sake of the climate. We're saving the climate for the sake of the people of our communities and the people of our world. So in this case, with the Climate Action Plan, we knew that getting broad support from people who don't normally engage in climate conversations was going to be critical to the success of this. So when we wanted to devise a strategy, we started not with the assumption of this is a typical government process. We'll do community outreach. We'll have meetings at City Hall and people can show up at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night and they can tell us what they think. Rather, we went to our community groups and we asked them, how do we more effectively talk to the people who aren't here today? How do we go out and get them engaged? And the response we got from our, from our advocates and from our community representatives is, well, they're not going to listen to you because you're the city. You're the city and you've historically been part of the problem, not part of the solution. So if you really want to engage people in this conversation, don't be there. Or at a minimum, don't lead. And we took that to heart. We didn't push back on this because we want to be better people than the community may view us as. We said, all right, if that's the reality of the situation, let's work with it. So in this case, we divided the RFP into two parts. We have a traditional climate consultant to help us with deep policies, to look at energy, to look at waste, to look at transportation, make sure our greenhouse gas emissions reductions match the council's adopted goals, and develop the policy language for implementation. But we also gave a third of the money for the whole planning process to hire an equity facilitator. This is going to be somebody hired from within the community, somebody who has connections to our various neighborhoods, somebody who can handle translation services and can truly tell us how to get to more communities. They will run our engagement process for us. The city will just be supportive to what that equity facilitator identifies as the need. So if they tell us to show up at more churches and mosques, then we'll show up at more churches and mosques. If they tell us, we want you to come to these six meetings, but not to these other four meetings, then we won't come to the meetings. We'll take the information that they get when the city's not in the room, and we'll bring it back together. We're trying to be tremendously intentional about finding new ways to engage people in this conversation. And that means rethinking the basic structure of how it works. And in this case, our partners are telling us that we'll get more feedback if we do some pretty non-traditional things. It's definitely requiring us to be a little outside of our comfort zone in this, but we think that if our community tells us how they want to provide feedback, even if that means you have meetings that are going to be earlier in the evening, that you're going to provide food, that you're going to provide childcare, 
at some of these meetings. That is how we are structuring our outreach process because that's what our community tells us they need to get those people involved. That's outstanding. And and I just want to put an underscore on that one third of the budget. I think it would be hard pressed to ask a lot of communities out there if they had even close to that for their community engagement portion of most planning activities. Um, and I think it speaks to the scale of the need to get that conversation going. And I also really excited to hear you guys saying out front, we're going to make ourselves a little uncomfortable because maybe that's where we need to go to try something different. Any other particular projects or, or activities where you feel like this kind of both uh, analytic framing but inclusive approach is is uh, taking shape for you all? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think the the need to frame things around the priorities of the community is really incumbent upon bringing successful solutions to scale. In the case of Oakland, one of our proudest achievements today has been the formation of East Bay Community Energy. This is a community choice aggregator. There are currently seven states in the U.S. that allow these essentially substitutes for an investor-owned utility. Local governments can band together or on their own and do procurement of electricity instead of the utility. In doing this, it opens up a wide variety of options for getting to more green electricity, getting to more green power, but also to capture those revenues previously included profits for shareholders of the utility, as well as a lot of other marketing and infrastructure costs that cities simply wouldn't be responsible for. So informing this, city of Oakland, along with 10 other cities and our county, got together and over two years formed East Bay Community Energy. Now, there are lots of community choice energy programs in California, and the number is expanding pretty rapidly. Most of them have the same goals around um, reducing climate change, around procuring more green energy. These are wonderful, and they're definitely part of our program too. But in the case of ours, we invited in community advocates. We invited in non energy folks into the conversation and ask them what they most wanted as a result of making this type of change. And what they said is, well, we hear about the green economy creating all these jobs. We want jobs. We want jobs to be created from this. Is it going to create a lot of jobs? And the way most of these programs work is that they look for the cheapest form of green electricity out there, which usually ends up being hydropowered projects from the northwestern part of the United States or southern Canada or their large wind projects out in the desert in places like Southern California. And those are good that they produce that, but our community said, no, we want local jobs in here. So East Bay Community Energy said, all right, we'll set some ambitious goals for getting green energy, but we're also going to set a priority for local job creation. That means that we're going to look to build more of that renewable energy here locally with labor that can help bring about uh, we have potential for wind farms. We have potential for solar, not just on residential rooftops, but also in maybe some brownfield sites, parking lot canopy coverage. These are some ideas that we want to act upon and we want to state very clearly as a priority of forming this. So we're not just looking to get the lowest rates possible. We asked people, what's more important, that you pay less for your electricity or that we create more jobs as a result of this? And the people involved here resoundingly said, it's more jobs. So in our case, we're going to have a little bit less cost savings than some of the other programs, but we're going to be able to create more than a thousand direct jobs as a result of this. So this is something that we think dovetails and can help counter the narrative that, that's out there that green jobs, in fact, are not consistent with uh, some of the other climate goals. And, and in this way, we think that we've done a pretty successful way of, of documenting that you can balance the needs to help people save money and reduce their energy cost burden, but also do local economic development. 
really great example, I, I think, of, of trying to find those synergies and wins um, and maybe changing what is uh, more of the normal framing of how to, to look at this, this new program startup from its, its siloed kind of energy benefits. I got to ask about one more because when I ran into you at the Global Climate Action Summit, you mentioned it, and I love this kind of stuff. Your capital improvement program budget process. You uh, told me a little bit about it. Why don't you tell our audience how you guys are building some of these concepts into that process? Oh, this is this is something that's long overdue, and I'm imagining a lot of your listeners will see this frustration if they start to look into uh, how infrastructure is paid for within your community. So a capital improvements program is simply a budget tool. It's used to prioritize projects for investment uh, in infrastructure. It usually runs on a, a two-year, three-year, five-year cycle uh, in most cities. In Oakland's case, it's two years. So we have a pot of money that's available for infrastructure investment. The CIP tells us over two years how we're going to spend that money. Now, historically, and I mean this for the last 40 or 50 years of Oakland, the CIP has been guided by only three factors, health and safety, first cost, so what is cheapest, and whether there's a regulatory mandate to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot more to consider in terms of deciding where we should best spend our infrastructure money than just those three factors. And it turns out our community agreed with us. So starting last year, the city took a very open-ended idea of what other factors should we consider within scoring investment in infrastructure and how should we relatively weight those things. So we asked the community for ideas. We got back lots of information and ideas. They included things like equity, essentially how much are we going to prioritize investments in underserved areas or historically underserved areas. Equity came in, uh, resilience came in. Uh, we know that we have to adapt to the effects of climate change. Uh, certainly, as well as reduce uh, vulnerability for natural hazards like earthquakes and wildfires, which both are a big risk here in places like Oakland, and things like climate around sustainability. So we had many others. We ended up with nine factor areas um, once we culled the list and combined a few things that made sense within those. And although there was a staff committee to help guide this, we ultimately decided that we would survey the community. We would set a minimum number of responses that we needed we set the minimum at 500 people that would weigh in and tell us what they thought their top priorities were and that the scoring would be based on what the community said, not what staff said. So we ran this engagement process. We ended up getting more than 1,500 people responding to this and providing it. And it turns out the top ranked factor, the one that now has the highest scoring in our CIP moving forward is equity. It's about investment in underserved communities. That was the most important thing to Oaklanders about how we invest in infrastructure. But resilience is now in there. It's the number three criteria, and climate is number six. So out of the nine scoring criteria, equity, resilience, and sustainability now account for almost a third of the scoring for where infrastructure projects happen and which ones get prioritized. So that gives a great amount of incentive to not only public works, but Department of Transportation and all the departments who help guide infrastructure. Uh, this helps them know that they get more points for getting in the infrastructure they want if they include climate-friendly solutions, if they look at the sea level rise roadmap that the city has completed to see if they're at risk of, uh, of their infrastructure being inundated during the lifetime, the expected lifetime of what they're building. It asks them to make sure that if they just want to produce something in Oakland, that they prioritize disinvested communities as the place to receive those, those infrastructure investments first. These are ways that we get to other departments, and we do it not by saying, uh, you have to do this. Uh, we do this by saying it's to your advantage to do it. It will help you score greater. It will help you get better access to funding. And now it's incumbent upon us as staff to then take that and say, okay, now how do we make sure that each of those departments know the top three things that they need to do in their infrastructure 
to meet those climate and resilience goals. That's the next challenge for us is to make sure that every person who manages a CIP project in Oakland can tell you that the best ways to get to the carbon benefits, for instance, are decarbonize, get rid of um, natural gas or gasoline in your infrastructure uh, to eliminate construction waste and to transition to the low carbon transportation system, serving it as much as possible. If we can get to that, then we'll be successful in its rollout. Wow, this is all incredibly exciting to me. And, and I think, uh, you know, want to just say thank you to the city for its leadership. But also, I mean, what you've made abundantly clear is that our thanks go out to the people of Oakland, that this has so much been informed by a lot of conversations and will continue to be informed by conversations across the community. And that's really where we need to go. I mean, as I as I think back to how we started uh, with that quote from the IPCC report, it sounds like Oakland is doing exactly what we need to be doing to strengthen the capacity for climate action of civil society, your private sector, your local community. And that's what we need to support implementation of these ambitious actions. So I really, really just want to applaud all the work that's going on there. And I, I hope folks will look up what's happening in the city, maybe uh, give Daniel a ring, look at look at some of the programs and materials that they have online, because it's been it's really exciting to see a city at this scale operationalize these changes. So any other resources that, or tools that you want to point our audience to before we wrap? Yeah, I would love to, to make sure that everybody who's out there, it may feel like sometimes the bigger cities have a lot more access to resources, just have deeper staff and the like. I want you to know that we do this with a pretty minimal staff. A lot of the things I mentioned happen because we get broad-based buy-in, and largely we get that from putting information in the hands of the people who are making the decisions across the community, as well as our elected officials. There are great resources out there, everything from Project Drawdown to uh, Rocky Mountain Institute to some of the consulting groups, Meister Consulting Group, for instance, puts out wonderful energy data on a state-by-state -state basis. There are lots of tools out there that you can't do the analysis for your own community, things that are specific. You will find, in fact, that there's a lot of resources available to do this as a shortcut. As an example, the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, um, which operates in the U.S. and Canada, has recently issued a high-impact practices list. These are things that have been documented to have the most um, carbon impact for cities within the United States and Canada um, across the entire network. There's lots of these lists out there. USDN is a great source. Rocky Mountain Institute is a great source. There's lots of other choices. Best way to do these things is to, to reach out to some of the folks or simply talk to Feel free to call me. Feel free to call sustainability leaders in some of the bigger cities. There's lots of great stuff to share out there. And don't let the lack of information be a barrier to you finding what's important in your community and helping to have others lead that conversation. Because the best thing we can do as climate professionals are to be the change agents that allow other people to lead. Our best role here is to be followers and to be followers of as many people as possible. Wow. Thank you for that, Daniel. And I, you may regret offering your to be called up, and, and I certainly set you up for that. But uh, I hope that folks will take you seriously to look at what's out there, look at some of the resources available, and look to take action because the time is, is now. Well, we certainly could talk about these issues. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm afraid we're out of time. But I want to thank you, Daniel, for participating and your work in this area. Well, thank you so much, Kif. There's a, it's an exciting time to be in the field, and cities truly do have, I'd say, a huge role to play within this. That's, that's identified within a lot of stuff happening in Paris and the Global Climate Action Summit. It's a wonderful time. Cities are engaged. Mayors are engaged. Council members are engaged. This is a time to help. 
If your community is not one of the leaders in this, you can be. And now is probably a best time to introduce this because the the political momentum, the information out there is probably never going to be stronger. Well, thank you again, Daniel. and, And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.